Welcome to Our Hen House. This is Marianne Sullivan. And this is Jasmine Singer. And on this week's show, Jasmine's going to be welcoming back one of our favorite guests. That's Carl Orzachowski. And he is now working with Phonolytics and he's doing some amazing work there. And it has brought really an entirely new visual dynamic to Phonolytics work. And we have always loved Phonolytics. They do this remarkable work in serving the animal rights movement. They help the animal rights movement help animals by providing resources that are needed to change the world for animals. You really enjoyed this interview, didn't you? Yeah, totally did. The last time he was on, we were talking about his film, Maximum Tolerated Dose, which this was like a hundred years ago, but it's all it's still such a relevant film and it's such a powerful one. And so is the work that Carl is doing with Phonolytics. So I think people are going to really get a lot out of this. We have a few announcements before we get to that. So... Oh, let me talk about the first one because it's so cool. Yeah, go for it. Uh, And we just heard about it. This is uh, going on in in New York City. I don't think it's just in Manhattan. I think it's in a couple of the boroughs. It's this organization called Save Art Space, and they're presenting Animal Liberation, a public art exhibition, starting on August 29th. I think it runs for like a month or so. They say that animal liberation is for those who believe that freedom is a right that we all have regardless of the species. We want to celebrate freedom and the struggle behind it. And I I have no idea what these... Billboards. There are going to be several billboards, uh, and they're buying billboard ad spaces. They've selected several artists. The artists are Camilla Rose, Kate Louise Powell, Philip McCulloch Downs, and they have created pieces that are going to be on these billboards. I cannot wait to see this. Public art installations are so cool. This was curated by Praxis Viggs. I'm doing my best. I'm pronouncing that on billboard ad spaces around New York City, and it'll be on view for a month. So I hope we all get a chance to see it or at least see a picture of it. Though, as you'll be mentioning before, a little later, you were recently in New York City. It's too bad you missed this. Let's do our other announcements before we get to talking about that. Yeah, I just want to add that this is my favorite, like amongst my favorite kind of advocacy. So I love it. Totally love it. We'll link to it in the show notes. Okay, the European Vegan Summit will be held on September 15th to the 18th as an online event and will be fully implemented on the independent vegan content platform Beyond Animal. This event will be conducted entirely in English. To join it, you need to register on the website, which is at vegansummit.eu, and we will link to that as well in the show notes. The event consists of 12 discussion panels on activism and vegan business and media, science and politics. So amazing. In addition, three film sessions are planned as part of EVS. The premiere screening of Listen to Vegan Startups, plus Vegan Warsaw, directed by Dr. Marcin Anishwevitz. I can't say that. I'm sorry. Can you try and pronounce that for me? Anna Schewitz. Uh, I, okay. I'm probably not any better than you are. Okay, well, I just wanted us to both do it badly so that it wasn't just me. I hate it. I hate mispronouncing people's I know, names. Me too. I hate making a big deal about pronunciation. But our excuse here is that we we did not have a chance to check with these people. Yes. And Anna Spurek, who is also part of this director team of Vegan Warsaw. Another film that will be premiering will be Milked directed by Amy Taylor. Very cool. I love that it's online. And I think we have another announcement related to Milk. Why don't you take us through our third announcement? 
because milk is also going to be shown at this event, which will be in Rochester and which will feature us. Technically, it's in Pittsfield, which is right outside of Rochester. Technically, it's in Pittsford. Pittsford, that's right. <laughs> like, like, are we going to pronounce anything properly on this entire episode? No, uh, no. Right. It, it is an event starring us that is being put on by an incredible Flock member and former our henhouse guest Pearl Monique Cole Brunt, and it is right outside of Rochester. Okay, you give the rest of the details. All right. It's at Kings Bend Park in Pittsburgh, and we will be speaking. And then there's going to be a film screening of, of Milk. I'm so glad that they selected that movie. And there's going to be uh, some, some vegan chili and cornbread. And there's also going to be a VIP event before the uh, event, which is at our favorite store, Cleo and Ken, which is close by. And there'll be some wine tasting and some hors d'oeuvres. So all in all... It should be kind of kind of fun. If you're anywhere near in the area, we'd yeah. love to see you there. You can find out more at, at the website letwistedspoon.com. L-E-T-W-I-S-T-E-D-S-P-O-O-N. I am very glad you said that because I was repeating it, Marianne, and I thought it said let wisted spoon. <laughs> We're very pronunciation. Like I genuinely today. was confused. Just a couple other things. It's a fundraiser for our hen house. So as you know, we're a nonprofit. And then the second thing I wanted to mention is please come to the VIP event. And the third thing I wanted to mention was like, what a perfect opportunity for you to come see Rochester and see what all the, uh, you know, all the fuss is about. So I can't wait to see you there. I was just traveling, as you mentioned, I was in New York City last week. So I was able to refuel a little bit in my New York City way the things I need to do and normally I'm there on business there was a little business on this trip but it was mostly just kind of to have fun and I did work a bit but it's a vacation I had been planning for a while thanks to having a ton of credit card points that got me a free hotel stay so it was like a fancy trip I'm usually sleeping on someone's couch it was kind of distressing to hear from you about this trip as it was happening because I haven't been, you know, I was just about to say I haven't been home. I haven't been to New York City in a while and everything changes, you know, how it is. Like it's constantly changing and the restaurants are closing and opening. And so everything seemed different, except for a few things. You did see a few old friends. But tell us, tell us about the new stuff. Well, I will skip telling you about most restaurants I ate at because, you know, they were mostly just fine. I'm, I'm a tough person to please when it comes to food. But I was pretty blown away by this new restaurant called Bells, which again, in the theme of today, I might be mispronouncing, so I'll spell it. It's B-E-L-S-E. And it's on the Lower East Side. It's like an eight-minute walk to Mushu's. I remember that specifically. So you can go to Mushu's after or before. It's actually right next to the new museum as well. And I went there too. There's some interesting exhibits going on right now about like race and class but the food at Bell's is very plant forward, as they say. And it's also a vegan brewery. I was there at like 1130 a.m. So I did not partake in that part of it. Although I would love to go back at night and try some of the drinks that they had because both cocktails and the beers on draft were amazing. When you say plant forward, it's a vegan restaurant. Yeah, right? it's totally vegan. It's just like kind of fancy ways of using vegetables in ingredients, which I think is something that veg 
had originally kind of mainstream veg in, in Philadelphia. And so back when we went to veg, when that first opened, I think that was sort of iconic. And this reminds me a little bit of it, but it's fancy, but it's also like not, it's not, it's not 11 Madison Park fancy. It's not like hundreds of dollars or in the case of 11 Madison Park, probably thousands. That's a whole other story. I've never been there and I will never go there because come on. Anyway. I would totally go there if somebody paid for it. Well, that's, yeah, I mean, sure. But I like, I'd love really, to go there. I would love to, okay, Bells, back to Bells. It was, you would love to go to Bells too, trust me. It's like a great sort of industrial vibe. The aesthetic is like open. There's some outdoor seating. I got like a really incredible, uh, what do you call it? Gazpacho and a Caesar salad. I'm a big Caesar salad person when it's at a vegan restaurant. Back when I used to eat animals, I liked oppressive Caesar salad. Now I like liberation Caesar salad. And it w- and more had gotten like this incredible burger. And I, I mean, it was amazing all the vegetables they put on it. It's just really good. Then I got this cheesecake. It was like a raw cheesecake. I love a raw cheesecake. And Oh, if I could just eat that every day, I I would be very happy. This place must be really good because it is true. You do not usually gush like this over a restaurant. Oh, very unusual. You're usually picky. I have one more thing to add. A few, when was that? Like a month or two ago, I was in Toronto and I went to Planta, which is all over Toronto. There's a, several different locations of it. It's a vegan restaurant. They they have a, a a couple in New York City as well. And I went to Planta because it was very close to where I needed to meet someone. And I'm just going to say, if you go to Planta, get there. This was Planta Queen, by the way. That was the location on 27th Street. Get the sweet potato. <laughs> like what a weird thing to recommend. But it was like one of the best things I had on the trip was the sweet potato. It was so good. Was it like a yam kind of sweet potato or was it like a Japanese sweet potato? Yeah, it was like a Japanese sweet potato. Oh, was yeah, lo- then get it. Because Japanese it was sweet loaded. potatoes are my favorite food. But it was, lo- I mean, I buy them and make them myself, but this was like next level. Like there was all this like yummy vegan sour cream and vegetables and scallions and like other yummy things that the sounds it was good. amazing. It was so good. So yeah. That, that was kind of the, there were a lot of other restaurants too, but everything I was like, eh. I saw a lot of theater. I saw Funny Girl. And for those of you who are following the big Funny Girl drama, I did not see it with Beanie Feldstein, nor did I see it with Leah Michelle. I saw it with like the in-between person whose name is Julie Benko. And I am so glad I did because I won't get too distracted since this is an animal rights podcast. <laughs> I know, like 90% of our audience just went, Way. I know, I know. I, well, no, no, no. They like, they like, <laughs> they like musical theater. I, I can tell. But she was just amazing. And she's like a breakout star. And it's kind of a meta sort of experience because Fanny Bryce was like a breakout star. And she was playing Fanny Bryce. And it was just phenomenal. Like, I loved it. By the way, did I tell you I wrote something nice about it on my Instagram and Julie Banco commented on it? I was so excited. Oh, wow. That is fun. <laughs> I know it was kind of fun. Anyway, uh, so I also saw A Strange Loop, which just won a bunch of Tony Awards. That's kind of the That's hot, the ticket, hot ticket, right? Yeah, see, but see it like I was up in the balcony and I think that there's an intimacy to that show that unfortunately was lost on me a little. Like I couldn't follow some of it because it's like fast paced lyrics and like constantly and I, I missed a lot of it. So I feel like I need a redo of that one. And then I also saw a show that I'm a little embarrassed to admit, but I'm going to. 
which is I saw Tyler Henry, the Hollywood medium, who has a show on Netflix and and he also has a show on like, I don't know, stars or something. But I, I've watched a lot of his shows. He's this young gay guy. I saw his show once when I was over at your house. He's this young gay guy. He started when he was 19. He's like 26 now and he's a medium and he's very charismatic and like really compelling, you know? I mean, I definitely am like opting in for this stuff a lot of the times, but I saw he was doing this stage show. And so I went and I just have to tell you a little vegan gripe for just a second because I did really enjoy it. And I get that I live in a non-vegan world. Usually I understand that, but it's like particularly annoying when you're talking to a medium who isn't vegan because like, for example, he was doing this introduction. I don't often talk to mediums who are not vegan. I stick to vegan mediums in my, in my conversation. Okay. Little side note, Angie Lovell, Angela Lovell was on our our show. Like true. And that was a really good episode. And she's a psychic and a medium and she's vegan. I didn't talk to her though. You did. No, I know. But she talked about like, how she kind of needed to recreate a lot of these, the rituals for her witchy stuff that she does, like that, which is not what Tyler does, but like in a vegan way. And she requires that her, the people who she's reading don't eat animal products for two days because she believes that like it clogs the reading, like when she's, they're clogged with the soul of these animals, which I love that for her. I love that, 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 that is her way of dealing with this. But Tyler is definitely not that person because he was talking about like, he was like, I even sometimes read dogs. And the only animal he's ever, not read dogs, but like a dog will come through, he'll say, and like from the other side or whatever. And he, he says, even a dog will come through, making the point that even those who are, who are less conscious can come through. And everyone was like, ha ha ha. And I was like, oh God. I really wanted to ask a question. I really wanted to like be be faux ignorant and ask a question about like the farmed animals just to like, just to kind of get material for our head house, <laughs> put them on the spot, but I didn't get a chance to. But anyway, so that was annoying. And then they must've seen you coming. You see, he intuited that yeah, you would I'm ask sure an annoying question and that's why you weren't selected. Yeah, yeah, I know. Yeah, I mean, honestly, like what about the good billions of, of animals being murdered right now? Like, do they ever come through? And so he, and he, he eats animals, I assume. Yeah, he does. And he even made like a little joke about cow. He made a little joke about how there was nothing to do nothing to do in this town he grew up in except like maybe cow tipping and I was oh my god I know I know I know but anyway so Maura and I are, we haven't worked on it in a while but we are working on a creative project together that I don't want to get too much into it but it does address what happens to animals you know when they kind of go to another realm and uh, like the surprise by the human souls in that other realm, but I'll leave it at that. And I'll, I'll, you could interview me if it ever goes anywhere. You could interview me on our hands. All right, that's a deal. So those are my updates. But enough about me. Well, at least you had an exciting, exciting trip to New York, even if one night was completely wasted on nonsense. <laughs> All right, but let's get to somebody who's not nonsense. Did you notice I did that segue there? That was really good. Carl yeah. 
Orzechowski is an animal advocate with a passion for blending activism and art. In addition to producing numerous short films on various animal issues, Carl is the director of Maximum Tolerated Dose, a full-length documentary about the psychological toll of vivisection on both animals and humans. God, it was such a good movie. If you haven't seen it, check it out. When he's not working for Faunalytics, Carl is usually planning, hosting, or performing events in his local art scene, and he will be joining Jasmine right after this. Greetings, listeners. Just a reminder that if you are a Flock member, you will get a link to the bonus segment in your email on the Tuesday after this podcast episode goes up, or you can always find it on the Flock Facebook group. And if you're not a member of the Flock and you can afford it, you can join for $10 a month or $100 a year at ourhenhouse.org slash donate. Also, if you are a Flock member, please join us for our Flock First Friday Zoom calls, which are once a month on the first Friday of the month at 4 p.m. Eastern, where we have inspiring guests and great conversations about activism and animals and life in general. So if you're a member of the Flock, check out that Flock Facebook group for updates or write to us at info at ourhenhouse.org. And if you write to info at ourhenhouse.org, you can also set up a one-on-one conversation with me too, which I hope you do because I always have a lot of fun and I want you to also. And thanks so much for joining us in our mission to change the world for animals. Bye. Welcome to our henhouse, Carl. Thanks for having me. Super excited to talk to you. You do so so much interesting work, and I have known you for so long, so I love when like life kind of brings us back together to have these interesting chats, and it's certainly been way too long. So just putting it out there, I don't want it to be this long before the next time we talk. Yeah, it's been a really, really long time, and yeah. uh, it's great great to catch up with you. Totally. Now, I think of Faunalytics as an organization that conducts research and publishes reports. So why did you decide to get into doing visual resources? Well, so something that we do in addition to like conducting our own research and publishing reports is that we maintain this huge library of other research that we haven't conducted, research that exists out there in the world about animal issues. You know, there's so many journals out there, scientific journals and in addition to that, there's so many groups out there that are doing their own research and publishing reports. So part of what we do in the library is to summarize that research into a form that's understandable for the average human person. (laughs) If you have ever spent any time taking a look at academic journals, you know that it can be very tough to understand what's going on at the best of times. And at the worst of times, it can be totally incomprehensible, especially when you're dealing with like data numbers, formulas, percentages, things like that. Yeah, I sort of zone out. So go ahead, because I'm totally with you. I need the visual learning. Totally. One of the things that we do is to simplify this research as much as we can. But the feedback that we get from our audience and our users of the site is that they always want things to be even more simplified if we can make it that way. And one of the ways that we identified that would be good to do that would be to start a visual program. So doing more infographics, videos, and things like that. And that that's where the, the visual program from Faunalytics comes from. Amazing. It's also great for people who have what I have, which is like 
adult onset ADHD or just kind of living in the society we live in now where it's just really hard to focus on long form, especially academic reports, as well as probably being more accessible to differently abled people, which I guess is sort of one and the same. So your latest fundamental was on animals and social justice. I want to talk about that, but first let's back up. Am I right? There are three types of resources in your visual program. There's fundamentals, infographics, and explainer videos. So before we get into the latest fundamental, what are the fundamentals? Sure. So the fundamentals are a series of long-form infographics that we did that cover like a really broad animal topic area. So we have a fundamental on farmed animals. We have one on companion animals. We have one on wildlife. We have one on ocean life. We have one on zoonoses. And I feel like I might be missing one. Research animals. Yes, research animals. So we created these to sort of Well, for two reasons. One, to sort of give animal advocates the most up-to-date data on that particular topic in a really, like, broad way. Like, obviously, we're not getting into lots of nitty-gritty stuff and, and really niche issues within those topics. But if you go through those infographics, you'll get a really good idea of that topic area in a broad, general sense. And... These are infographics that we update every year or two years with the latest data. We make sure that that everything in them is up to date so that advocates can go back to them over and over again and and see what's in there. The fundamental that we did most recently is on animals and social justice. You know, these are topics that have been important to the phonolytics team for a long time. It became especially more so sort of post-pandemic, post-George Floyd, uh, looking at the sort of landscape in the United States and thinking, we need to be more vocal about this. We need to put ourselves out there more in terms of giving people a sense of what Phonolytics as an organization believes in and, and why we think these issues are important. Okay, so the animals and social justice fundamental, like what can people expect to find there? So we cover a whole bunch of stuff in that fundamental. We cover, you know, for example, like looking at environmental racism. So we look at hog farming in North Carolina. And and North Carolina has been, it's an interesting example because it's one of the only places that's been studied really, really closely in terms of this topic. So when I say environmental racism, I mean factory farms being primarily located in like black communities or low-income communities. And obviously, the, all of the health effects that come with living near a factory farm, those rippling out into the community and primarily affecting Black folks and people with low incomes. So we look at, we take a positive look as well. We look at change makers in animal advocacy around the world. We look at organizations that are trying to bring in a more intersectional perspective into animal advocacy and what they're doing. You know, we don't just want to dwell on sort of negative topics, we always try and include in the fundamentals something positive and ways that people can get involved. And yeah. Amazing. We got to look through that for some interview ideas or just send us, send us any, but we'll, we're going to come through it later. That is so cool. I would be surprised if you hadn't interviewed a lot of the folks already, because this has been part of what our hen house has done for a long time as well. Yeah. Thank you. 
Though, you know, every now and then I'm like, who's that person, you know? And it's like very cool because there are people like popping up left and right, I feel like now. I remember when we first started our hen house in January of 2010, we talked to our first funder, the, the person who gave us like our seed money. And he was like, I mean, it sounds like a pretty good idea, but won't you run out of people to interview? And <laughs> here we are, you know, 12 and a half years later. So it was, it's funny. I feel like we could do this every day and not run out of people to interview. So do you cite sources for all your factual assertions? Absolutely. Okay. <laughs> we, we wouldn't be making any factual assertions if we didn't cite any sources. And that's actually been one of the interesting things about doing some of these resources is finding out what data exists out there and what doesn't. So, for example, with, the, with talking about environmental racism, one of the reasons that that was so studied in North Carolina was that there was a particular academic who was very who had uncovered some stuff related to that issue and was very dedicated to bringing it to light. I believe his name was Dr. Stephen Wing. And, and he was, yeah, he, he made a, he, he dedicated his academic career to sort of working on that issue in that state. For that, you know, the North Carolina hog industry sued him over and over again, made his life miserable in a lot of ways, tried to get him to give data over related to like the people that he studied and I'm sure to make their lives miserable. And just sometimes these, we find that topics that we're covering, not just in the, in that fundamental, but in fundamental say about research animals or about companion animals or farmed animals, it can be really difficult to find data on what we're looking for, because as you know, outside of the sort of vegan world, for a lot of people, animals don't count. And by extension, they don't get counted. Mm. Yeah, I can imagine the the data must have been hard to come by. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Like, how, how do you go about finding it? Sure. So there's always the balance of not just finding data, but finding reliable data. And sometimes we err more towards the side of finding, leaning on reliable data versus the data that might be more interesting. So for example... When we think about, say, right now, something that I'm working on is a series of infographics about global slaughter numbers. So this is something that we've been, we've been doing for a few years. We look at the UN Food and Agriculture Organization data over time, and we're able to say, you know, this many land animals were killed in around the world in 2020. Uh, and then we can break it down by country, we can break it down by continent, all that all that sort of thing. That data tells us, that data gives us like a really high level overview of how many animals we're consuming in the world and whether that number is going up or down, like how the situation is changing in different countries. Now, with that said, I know a lot of, a lot of people have pretty strong critiques about the UN FAO data. It's not perfect. There are all kinds of you know reporting problems. There's there's issues with all data. No no data is really airtight and perfect and can't be critiqued. And so, with that being said, there's not really like a great other alternative apart from doing a lot of sort of high level math and making estimations, which probably rely on the UN data as a starting point anyway. So, in certain situations, we'll sort of err on the side of well, 
these numbers aren't perfect, but they're the best that we have. And they can give us a really clear picture with some caveats. Okay, so random question. Who's doing this research and what kind of background do they have? Like, who who makes up your team? I can't I, I can't quite put my finger on what you would have in that job description. <laughs> <laughs> so we have a few research scientists on staff now, and our research director, Joe Anderson, is has a PhD in social science and, and is a research scientist, is a statistician. We have folks on our team, Andrea Polanco, who also just got her PhD, Zach Waldirk, and Connie Alvareo, who is a research assistant as well. And so we have this tight team of researchers who really, they conduct all of our original research. And then we have, like when I'm looking at, for example, the data that's going to make up the global slaughter statistics. I mean, that's coming from the UN FAO. And so they have their own collection methods and their own researchers who do that sort of thing. Very yeah. cool. I love that. So who who are these resources designed for? And how do you hope they will be used? This is kind of like the big animal activist question, right? Like, how do we get it out there? Sure. So the interesting thing about the fundamentals is that they're sort of meant to be like a 101 on a particular topic, right? And because they're like this kind of 101 thing, we wanted it to be useful for animals. We always want everything we do to be useful for animal advocates first. Like our mission is to empower animal advocates with data, with reliable data. But we also recognize that some of our resources can really work well for the general public. One of the things that we're really fortunate to have is a Google ad grant. So we get a certain like virtual budget from Google every month to spend on Google Ads. So when you search for pig farming, um, you might get a little Faunalytics ad that brings you to the farmed animal fundamentals, which <laughs> depending on what you're searching for and what kind of user you are, that might be a really interesting experience for you and might teach you a lot of things that are maybe not what you're expecting to find when you started on your Googling journey. And so we're lucky in that the fundamentals, for example, get a lot of traffic from that from that program and we think reach a lot of people who might not see them otherwise. That's amazing. I love that so much. So you mentioned in- infographics. The second type of resource is the infographics. So are the what is that used for? Basically the same thing as you just mentioned or is there like another layer there? Like our fundamentals are kind of these long resources that might contain a whole bunch of infographics, but we also create smaller ones for smaller purposes. So for example, we recently published a study summary about adoption statistics through the pandemic and data that the pet, I believe it's called pet point data that is like a, a network of data collection for animal shelters across the US. And they had published a, a bunch of findings about how many animals were adopted during the pandemic, whether they're still in their homes and whatnot. That was a great study summary. It had a whole bunch of numbers in it that we felt like could be better represented in a small infographic. And that was something that we created for that. So the infographics are really more kind of like ad hoc stuff that we do kind of on a one-off basis to cover like a, a much more sort of like niche topic really quickly. Yeah, I'm looking at the cultured meat one right now. There, yeah, and you have one on the greyhound industry. Really cool stuff. 
So the final category are explainer videos. What are they and what role do they play in the visual program? So the explainer videos we just started doing about a year and a half ago. And since then, we've done, I think, 10 or we might be up to a dozen now. And it ultimately went back to like user feedback. You know, every year we're actually getting set today to publish our our annual community survey. We love data so much that we also ask our users to fill out surveys so like we can get an idea of what they want and and how they're using our resources. And something that Phonolytics heard over and over again over the years was like please keep simplifying things, you know, give me the give me the like top bullet points. Give me the just give it to me as quickly as you can, which is challenging for us because we want to be accurate. Sometimes like data doesn't lend itself to being simplified. And so we decided that one of the ways that we could simplify things a bit more and sort of cut down on people's time commitment is to create these short videos that help to highlight one of the studies in our library. So the explainer videos are all like under three minutes long, something you can watch in between other things that you're doing and get a really quick overview of a, of a study that was done on a particular topic. We've covered a whole bunch of stuff in the explainer series so far. We've covered the impact of different conservation action. We've covered the idea of whether plant-based food labels are confusing to the general public. We've looked at really specific like advocacy techniques like offering veg food options as the default on menus, how using graphic images and animal advocacy affects people and and things like that. Wow, that's super cool. I love that. And so in general, what is the process for selecting those topics and deciding like what type of resource is appropriate? Because you just kind of covered the gamut. Mm-hmm. Something that you discover when you start to do these things is that not all data lends itself, you know, like I just mentioned, not all data really lends itself either to being, you know, to being visualized in in like charts or in an infographic or to being summarized in like a three minute snippet. Sometimes the research experiment is really complicated and so it's hard to sort of explain or sometimes the results are very nuanced and would probably be difficult to like parse in that time. So for us, the infographics and explainer videos are are always best done on studies and with data that's like really clear, that really has like a clear takeaway. And again, because our, our audience is advocates, we want it to have a clear takeaway for advocates. So like, what can an advocate do with this information? If a study doesn't have that kind of clear takeaway, then we probably won't make a video out of it. So one thing that concerns me when I write articles is how quickly things change. But the thing is, like with an article, it can live online, even if it is outdated, because it's sort of the nature of writing. But when you're doing what what you're doing, it, it sort of can't, right? Like, how, how do you keep up with the with the quickly moving facts changing? Yeah, well, I mean, that, that was one of the reasons why we figured that with our fundamental series, these would be resources that we updated regularly because they're meant to be a sort of broad overview on a topic and we really want people to use them that way. We thought, well, we're going to make sure that these are up to date 
that the studies that we're highlighting in them are things that are going on over a long period of time and that we can like track how things are changing. But with our infographics and explainers, we don't have that luxury. It's really important for people to like, <laughs> I don't know how often this happened, but it's happened a lot where you see someone post something on social media and you think this article is five years old <laughs> or something like that. Or for example, with like the global slaughter, just slaughter statistics that we're going to release. This is part of the reason why we rely on the UN data is that we know it's going to be updated on a regular basis. And that way we can track how things are changing, even if the data isn't perfect. It's more likely to be there than someone who, say, does a one-off analysis and then never does one again. But, you know, like you're saying, there is a a certain amount of like data literacy that needs to exist among advocates and needs to exist among the general public. I mean, this is something that we found in the pandemic is that most people don't understand how science works and how science unfolds over time. And especially when science is happening sort of in real time, like <laughs> when we're watching the process of knowledge creation in real time, it can be very messy and contradictory and results can contradict each other. And that doesn't mean it's not working. That actually means it is working. And so with keeping resources up to date, I mean, we publish 200 study summaries in our library every year. Those studies, any study really just represents a snapshot in time of a particular group of people being studied about, let's say, you know, their attitudes towards chickens or something like that. That study is a snapshot in time. And as time goes on, you know, we need to keep taking more snapshots. It's, uh, you can almost think of it as like animation, right? Like you create animation by taking many, many pictures over the course of time. And when you put all those pictures together, you start to see a moving image of I just made that up, but it sounds very poetic. I like it. No, I think it's great. As you were saying that, I was like, what a, what a perfect analogy. <laughs> yeah. Totally true. I keep thinking about when I was writing Always Too Much, and I got to the chapter where I was talking about dairy. At first, I was writing about it, and I just was like, okay, just write it, and then I'll go back later and kind of pick it apart. And so I included something about rape racks, and then, you know, I realized that it's animal rights activists and vegans who mostly came up with the fact that the farmers call them rape racks. It's not, it wasn't true. It didn't have a baseline, like every study linked to another animal rights resource. So I went to Mark Hawthorne who had done a significant amount of research for one of his books. Uh, I think it was striking up. No, it wasn't striking at the roots. It was a different one. And he had done research into it and found that like, horses have been attached to machines that were called rape racks, but not cows. So, I mean, you know, it still made the point, but I kind of was like, mm, the opposition is going to be extremely focused on what we're saying and how we're saying it, like ready to discredit us. Does that like in general make you nervous? No, it, do it doesn't actually. And it's funny, you mentioned the opposition and, and some of our most popular stuff has been the stuff that sort of 
directly mentions the opposition. So like our two, our two most popular explainer videos are ones about USDA subsidies. And the other one is about, we covered a report that was by the beef checkoff program, which is like an industry program. And they had published a report about what animal advocates are like doing and how they're strategizing. And so the the video that we did was called Countering Big, Big Beef's Playbook, which was looking at what they're doing to counter what we're doing and how we can counter that back. And we got so many negative comments. And so, you know, it really brought out all the industry trolls to like come and attack it. And which is really funny because it's their own report. Like we didn't really say anything that wasn't, <laughs> you know, we were just, it's out there, you know, and we just decided to bring it to animal advocates and say, Hey, animal advocates, this is what the beef industry says that we're up to and how they're going to counter it. So here are ways that you can counter strategize. And part of the thing with Faunalytics is that reliability and credibility are the two like most important things to us. It's really important to us that we have all of our I's dotted and T's crossed and that and that the data that we're putting out there is, I mean, ev- everything can be critiqued and there's always, you can criticize things in terms of methodology or sample size or things like that. You can, you can always pick things apart. But before we put things out into the world, we really do, we really take great pains to like make sure that everything is as tight as it can be because we anticipate being criticized and advocates are criticized all the time. So if advocates are using the things that we're putting out there, we want them to know that it's reliable and that they can, they can trust that it's not just like a weird stat that they found on like a, some, (laughs) who knows what, you know, there's, there are so many blogs out there, so many news sources so many of them don't link to their sources or where they got the data from. It actually is one of my pet peeves. How many I, I've noticed recently that a lot of news organizations will say, you know, they'll make a news story out of a new study. They'll say, uh, a study found that most people really dislike fireworks. I don't know. I'm just making something up out of, out of a hat. And you go to the article and you read it and there's no link to the study. There's no, even though the study exists somewhere, there's no mention of the names of the authors. There's no mention of anything like that. And so it's no wonder that people don't have literacy when it comes to this stuff because they never get a chance to interact with it. It's just turned into a, a press release and, and published to a news site and then People just sort of read a headline, a stat in a headline, and never and never try to understand what the actual study was about. Totally, my wife works in human research protection, so she just makes sure that studies that people volunteer to be in are ethical. And it's really fascinating because I didn't, I never thought about that before. And then it's like this whole giant world. And I was like, of course it is. Like every time I've been handed like a packet, if I was putting myself in a study, you know, I never thought like someone is overseeing this packet. So anyway, you're such a charming nerd. 
<laughs> well, thanks. I, you know, the Faunalytic staff is full of charming nerds. Yeah, I bet. That's the job description. Charming nerds, seeking charming Pretty nerds. Much. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty much. Yeah. So, okay, here's a question for you, because you just mentioned your team, and you, you're you obviously all, like, charming nerds, but you all have different perspectives on different things, I'm sure, because you're different people. So do you ever have topics that you don't agree on the right approach? Like, I'm thinking of welfare rights, kind of controversies, but I guess there could be many other ones as well. How do you handle ultimately the bottom line of what you're looking for? So it's kind of one of the nice things about being involved with an organization that is data-centric and and data-focused is that, I mean, we certainly all have our own opinions and we all come from different backgrounds. Some of us come from like a longer history of advocacy. Some of us are, are newer to the movement. And so... I mean, as you know, you know, there is sort of like a life cycle of being like an animal advocate, you know, you kind of start off, most people kind of start off really angry and and very rights focused. Some may sort of maybe quote unquote, like mellow out over time and become more welfare focused or whatever. But within the organization, we defer to the data. It's like, what does the data say works? And so it's, it's nice to be able to, in situations where there are disagreements, which like, truth be told, there aren't, there aren't that many, we're able to say like, okay, well, what does the data say about this topic? And it's interesting, as an organization that is data centric, people will sometimes be very demanding that Faunalytics like take a position on something. Like, what is your position on enriched cages or or something like that and our position is always well let's look at what the data says and on the topic of enriched cages for example the data says that the welfare of chickens in enriched cages is not all that much better than (laughs) regular cages and so to us that is indicative of what the position should be as an organization you know we're not really necessarily interested in having a hard position on issues because the data may change over time and it may be so for example like something that faunalytics as an organization talks a lot about is reducing meat consumption versus eliminating it we're big proponents of reducing meat consumption meal by meal if if that's where people are at it's important to meet people where they're at because there is no one size fits all approach not everyone is going to go vegan overnight And so what are the ways that we can encourage people to reduce their animal product consumption, even on a meal by meal basis? These are things that are like really uncomfortable for a lot of animal advocates to talk about because I think advocates get hung up on the idea that if they're not advocating for complete elimination, that they're somehow advocating for animal abuse. But we don't look at it that way. We're trying to advance the movement inch by inch. Sometimes it goes yard by yard, and sometimes it goes mile by mile. Am I using my, am I doing my American uh, yeah, conversions you're doing really, correctly? Really, really well. <laughs> yeah, really good job. So sometimes we can make bigger steps and and like bigger leaps, and other times we're just trying to get like mom and dad to like eat a few fewer animal product based meals a week. Yeah, I think that it's important for 
people listening to this to remember that a lot of this is strategy. It doesn't mean you're compromising on your bottom line. It doesn't mean you're sacrificing your view of animal liberation. It's just... Totally. Yeah. yeah like, I can be as vegan as I want to be. <laughs> and and all animal advocates can be as vegan as they want to be. But when it comes to reaching out to others who are not there, strategy is important. And data can help inform strategy. We recently had a question with someone wrote in and said that they were working with a food company that was going to be like reaching out to influencers to try and find like what would be effective messaging for getting people who are, I think, can't remember the exact age range, but let's say like 25 to 35 to go veg or go vegan. And I love it when people reach out to us and ask these questions because they're looking for like the one thing. What's the one thing that's most important to this age group? I love telling them that there is no one thing and that no, there's not one message that's going to reach everyone. <laughs> it's almost like a, a biblical or like kind of religious way of thinking where people think like, I just need to figure out like the one speech I need to make <laughs> to, or like the one, is it environmentalism? Is it health? Is it ethics? Like which, which one is the most important? And the, the answer is always, well, they're all important. Some people who are swayed by a health argument who are really into health are not going to, are just not going to care about animal ethics. They just aren't going to. And so finding the messaging that will work to reach a particular target audience is like so crucial. And it's so crucial for us to understand that one size doesn't fit all. It just, it never has and it never will. I was recently doing some research for an upcoming brainstorm that I have for Veg News for the first issue of 2023. And I was looking into trends, like projected trends for 2023 in every area, like fashion, food, lifestyle. And in every single one I looked at, there were vegan things. And there were not non-vegan things. I mean, there were things that were irrelevant to veganism, but it wasn't like cultivated meat and then like beef. You know, it was like, it, it was so inspiring for me. You know, it's really hard to get me out of my rut sometimes. But I was like, wow, people are shifting. And yeah, maybe it's not like they're not going fully vegan, but this is going to make a big dent. Mm -hmm. I mean, it is a really inspiring time right now for animal advocates, I think. Like, not only is the movement really growing a lot, like, as you said before, you know, you're, you're someone who's very connected to the movement, you're very involved, you know lots of people, and you're finding new people all the time that are doing really interesting work and going into new areas and... and you know, what you mentioned before about fashion. A few years ago, I think around, I can't remember when, 2018, maybe even 2017, I was introduced to this idea of material innovation. And so there are these companies that are working on material innovations, you know, replacing animal-based textile products like leather with alternatives that use all kinds of stuff like mush mushroom leather and th things Co coffee just, yeah, pineapple like just, apple i love it it's so wild and you know these are things that are so important to the advancement of of the cause but they're also things that 
from an advocacy perspective, have also been like kind of controversial over time. Like the idea of like vegan capitalism and this idea that some animal advocates and some vegans really want the animal advocacy movement to like stay radical <laughs> and to be completely non-corporate and all of that stuff. And to be honest, I feel that way a lot as well. But these things are so important to advancing things on a broader scale than just like a potluck that you're going to have with friends who are all like cool, like progressive people, you know? And I think that that's something that you're, you're highlighting. It's like, we, we can still be cool, progressive people who are like alt and, you know, into these things. But the advancements that are happening right now are great for the general public. And it's the general public that we need to reach. Vegans and vegetarians are anywhere between like 2 to 10% of the population. The other 90% of the population is like who we're trying to reach out to and get them to shift their habits. 1,000 billion percent. You, sh you shouldn't hire me because I don't do math. But <laughs> if I did... I would say that that was 1,000 billion percent. I completely agree with you. And it's nice to interview someone and end on a hopeful note. So definitely stay on for the bonus content because I do have a few more questions. But uh, can you please tell our listeners how they can access all of this incredible content and how they can support your efforts? Absolutely. So our website, which is, that's where it all happens, is at faunalytics.org. So in case you're not going to look in the podcast description and click on the link, it's F-A-U-N-A-L-Y-T-I-C-S dot org. Faunalytics.org. You can support our work by going to faunalytics.org slash donate. Uh, we also just started like a, a monthly donation program that we call the Database. And <laughs> that was not my, <laughs> not my creation, uh, but I think it's a brilliant name. I love it. And browse through our website, check out uh, the resources that are there. We have things divided by topics. So you can look just at studies about research animals or just at studies about farmed animals or just studies on effective strategy and things like that. And we're going to be in the next few months, redesigning the site, improving the way that the resources are laid out, improving our search function. And we're always trying to make improvements to like how people actually access stuff. And do you encourage people to share the graphics and whatnot on their social media? Great. Of course. And another way that you can stay in touch with us is by signing up for our email alert. So once a week, we send out a digest of stuff that we published in the last weeks. When you sign up for those alerts, you can tell us what you want to hear about. So if you just want to hear about companion animals, you will just get emails when we have new companion animal stuff. If you just want to hear about wildlife, you can get emails when we have new stuff in that area. I'm such a big fan. I'm so inspired by all of this. Carl, thank you so much for joining us on our NS today. And, and if you're in the flock, be sure to tune in on Tuesday for the flock bonus content. Carl, thank you. And we will talk to you very soon. Talk soon. 
If you like what you're listening to, and I hope you do, then please consider taking a minute out of your day today to leave us a friendly review. You can do it on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify or Stitcher or on Facebook or wherever you listen to podcasts or wherever you're listening to this. The more we get out there, the more our head house will be in front of people's eyeballs when they're putting in search terms in their podcasts and the more we could join forces together to elevate the voices of the animals and change the world for them. So thank you so much in advance for leaving us a friendly review. Anxiety surprising. Our first story says market poultry and eggs as local products. This is some advice from whatpoultry.com by Austin Alonzo. He's suggesting that to make more sales, poultry producers should market their products as local when possible. This isn't exactly rising anxieties. It's more like a scam report. <laughs> and he's not suggesting that people should exactly completely lie about their poultry being local. But uh, he attended some, some presentation where it was mentioned that consumers are more interested in local food than ever before. I can't believe that people are still falling, falling for that local scam. Uh, I digress. All right, 52% of consumers think local perishables are of higher quality. 49% believe they're fresher and last longer, and 42% are willing to pay more for local foods. This really doesn't have anything to do with it being local. Well, not, or very little to do with it being local. As we all know, it's what you eat. But he believes that this is a recipe for an easy win for chicken and poultry products because they slaughter chickens all over the place. So it's always kind of local. Chicken, turkey, and eggs are not produced everywhere in the United States, but are often processed and packaged close to major population centers. So if there's a slaughterhouse anywhere near you, and as he points out, consumers don't maintain a firm definition of the local term and can't really differentiate between a product grown in their hometown or 100 miles away. So if there's a slaughterhouse within 100 miles of your town, you're good. This is an opportunity for the chicken industry to merely change packaging and presentation and gain new customers. Oh, God, the world is just ridiculous. He's pointing out that it's very hard for, for poultry producers to differentiate themselves from each other and that they don't often brand themselves, you know, and that's really true. I mean, I don't really look at the dead bodies in the, in the poultry case that often, but most of them still, I think, don't have any kind of branding on them. You'll be happy to hear that he thinks that's perhaps for fear of scrutiny from marauding animal activists. So congratulations. But, you know, they have to not do that anymore. They have to start marketing. Shoppers are smarter than perceived. <laughs> well, he clearly doesn't think they're really very smart at all. More than ever, they want to know where the food on their plates came from. Oh, yeah, as long as it's from a slaughterhouse within 100 miles from here, it must be good. And if it was produced in a manner of which they approve, of which he, is, he hasn't said anything about that. All right. Our next story, also about poultry, avian flu vaccination becoming less of a taboo topic. I didn't really know it was a taboo topic, but apparently it is. What do I know? Vaccinating poultry for highly pathogenic avian influenza is still not a practice done in the United States, but it is an idea that appears to be finding less opposition than before. And this is for also from Watt Poultry by Roy Graber. He's pointing out that the reason for this, which I wasn't aware of, is many countries won't accept poultry imports from regions where avian influenza vaccination has been done. So since, you know, we're big uh, dead chicken exporters, uh, that's a concern for the industry. 
But certain industries are more excited about vaccination. You know, like this has been a year where unbelievable numbers of turkeys and chickens have died in avian influenza epidemics. So as he points out, certain industries are more excited about vaccination. Turkeys are very susceptible to this virus, and they are wanting to look into vaccination more than the broiler industry, which didn't have near as many cases. Well, my understanding was that both of these industries just lost unbelievable numbers of, of birds, most of whom were brutally and horrifically killed. But again, I digress. This article points out that the U.S. broiler industry does a lot of international trade, so that sector is not as excited to be looking at vaccines. Because why should we prevent these animals from getting sick when it would prevent us from being able to sell them? You know, it makes total sense. This is my favorite part. For producers that have had to go through the hardship of an avian influenza infection, it's easier to see vaccinations' potential benefits. It's hard on the producer. This is their livelihood. It's hard on the responders. And when you're having such strict biosecurity and you still get this virus in your barn, it's hard on everybody. She also pointed out that outbreaks are hard on the taxpayers who have to foot the bill for the disease response. Of course, she doesn't mention at all that it might be a little hard on the birds. God forbid we should ever think about the birds. All right, our final story is a fun one. This is um, from the UK. It's from The Sun by one Natasha Clark. Leafy Sussex town sparks backlash after telling residents to go vegan. I bet you didn't know there was a town in the UK that told its residents to go vegan. It's because there isn't. <laughs> but, but they did do a lot. This um, leafy Sussex town by the name of Hayward's Heath became the first town council in Europe to sign up to the plant-based treaty, which is described here as a radical eco-manifesto. According to signing up to the treaty, which according to this article is also um, been signed by Boynton Beach, Florida, which I knew about. But Buenos Aires, is that true? I didn't know that. That's like super exciting. The counselors back to this campaign and it calls the campaign calls to slap meat taxes on shoppers, stop farms expanding and turn them into green spaces. Eco campaigners and get this language, want to persuade everyone to go vegan. Like all of a sudden we're persuading people. <laughs> Like, isn't that a little different than telling them that they have to? And they want to put cancer warnings on all meat. God forbid anybody should know that there's a possibility they might get cancer. That might upset them. An army of we eco warriors is on hand to help counselors dish out materials to locals, schools, and businesses to get them to give up meat and dairy in a bid to help the planet. It's still sounding pretty voluntary to me. Last night, the council said they were not directing residents to follow the treaty. Well, yeah, obviously, they can't direct residents to follow the treaty. But angry campaigners hit out at nanny state meddling, which they said would cripple the farming industry. Of course, the campaigners, who they just mentioned in the next uh, sentence, is the Countryside Alliance. And they want everybody to stop pandering to misinformation, you know, representing farmers, particularly livestock farmers. And their spokesman said it is highly disappointing to see Hayward Heath counselors pushing a meddling nanny state approach by telling locals what they can and can't eat. And in the middle of a cost of living crisis, too. Can I remind you that they're not telling them what they can and can't eat? They're just trying to persuade them what they should and shouldn't eat. We all want to try to save the planet, but forcing diets on people is not the answer. Can I remind you that they're not forcing diets on anybody? More than 150 counselors up and down the country have already backed the Radical Manifesto. Radical Manifesto, sorry, I should have said it in those terms, in a bid to help the planet. Well, that's really good news. Really, really good news. Hooray for 
for the plant-based treaty people. We, of course, had Anita Cronch on to speak about it oh, a few months ago. Very exciting that they're having this progress. And that's it for this week's Rising Anxieties. Well, that's it for this week's show. As always, if you like the podcast and if you're able, we invite you to join the flock at ourhenhouse.org slash donate for $10 a month or $100 a year. Or you can make whatever donation you're comfortable with. Another way to support us is to leave us a fabulous review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts or like us on Facebook. You could also leave us a review there or follow us on Twitter or Instagram at Our Hen House. If you shop on Amazon, you can use Amazon Smile using Our Hen House as your favorite charity. And of course, tell your friends about us. If you're one of our listeners who already supports us, thank you so much. And thank you to my co-host, Marianne Sullivan, and to Jen Riley for her work in producing this podcast, to composer Michael Heron for the music. Thanks to Eric Montgomery of the Podcast Haven for his work editing this podcast, and to our production assistant, Jocelyn Martinez, and to Vicki Bichler for her membership and administrative help. We'd also like to give a shout out to the amazing Veronica Kalinska, who designed our brand new logos and other graphics. We'll be back next week with a brand new episode, so don't forget to subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Jasmine Singer. Thank you so much for tuning in. Listener.